Good morning. As I was uh, preparing for the sermon, Ron came up to me and he said, Hey, it's Mother's Day. Don't feel like you have to like shoehorn the text, you know, to fit that. And I was like, yeah, thank you. I know, you know, that's good. And he said, but do mention it. At least mention it. So happy Mother's Day. Um, you, you know, the good thing is that in God's providence, this text is actually all about mothers. It's all about mothers. And that's because the topic is all about suffering. It's all about suffering. Um, specifically, specifically, I want to focus on the joy, the joy of suffering with, with regards to service to Christ. Uh, sort of an oxymoron, joy and suffering. Uh, but we as Christians should be the most joyful of people. And that's because when we suffer, we're suffering uh, for Christ's sake, hopefully. So uh, with, here's three points for, for a roadmap for those who are note takers. If you want to have three points here, here are my three points. The first point is that those who suffer for Christ must do so fearlessly as a warrior. The second thing is that those who suffer will suffer for Christ must do so faithfully as a lawful athlete. And the third thing is those who will suffer for Christ must do so fervently as a diligent farmer works. So with that in mind, I'm going to read the text here. The text is 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 2, 7. If you want to follow along, I think we'll have it up on the screen as well. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier to Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he completes, competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Let's, let's pray. Father, we would see Jesus. We would know Christ. We would know him crucified for us. Lord, we will not know that. We will not see that from the text unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and opens our hearts. So we ask that you would do this, that. Open us to our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see your word, to know it, to, to leave this place with an aroma of Christ to smell like him, to look like him, to know him and his suffering. We pray all this in his name. Amen. There was a man named Joseph uh, who was a Maasai warrior over in Africa. If you know anything about the Maasai warriors, back in the day they used to have to kill a lion in order to be a warrior. They don't do that anymore because uh, you know, of different laws and whatnot. But he's a, a Maasai warrior in Africa. And one day as Joseph was walking down the hot streets, uh, uh, whatever it was in Africa, he's walking the streets and there's a missionary there who shared the gospel with him and told him all about Jesus and how he loved him and he died for him. And eventually Joseph became a Christian. He trusted in that Lord and that Savior, Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit began transforming his life and Joseph thought, I have to go back to my village. I have to go back to my village. I have to tell my whole village about this good news that I've heard. Well, Joseph began going door to door in his village, knocking, telling everyone about the cross, about suffering, about this man, Jesus Christ, and how it was free. He offered forgiveness for sins. He expected to see their faces light up as he had 
what he confronted was violence. They came out against him with violence, with mocking. The men of the village seized him. They held him down. The women beat him with strands of barbed wire, and they left him alone outside of the village to die in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a watering hole, and he there nursed himself back to health, and, and he thought, what was that about? Why did they receive me? These were my own people. This was where I grew up. Why did they receive me so harshly? I must have told it wrong. I must, have, I must have messed something up. I must have told something wrong because I received the message and it was so joyous to me. I must have told it wrong. I have to, I have to get it right. So he rehearsed it. He rehearsed the gospel. He goes back. He limps back into the village and the huts and he, he's proclaiming. He says, he died for you. Jesus died for you. He, he, you can find forgiveness from the living God. He pleaded with them. And again, they held him down. The women beat him, reopening wounds that once began to heal and they left him for dead again. Well, to survive a first time was uh, amazing, but to survive a second time was a miracle. And he, he woke up eventually again a few days later, uh, bruised, scarred, determined to go back. Determined to go back. Came into a small village. This time he couldn't even get a word out before they attacked him. Once again, beating him. He yelled out as loud as he could, Jesus Christ is Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was tears in the women's eyes as they pulled away from him. This time he awoke in his bed, and the ones who had beaten him were now trying to save his life, nurse him back to health. And eventually his entire village came to know Jesus. Now Joseph himself told that story at a Billy Graham rally many, many, many years ago. And that story leaves us with a question today. It leaves us with this question, how much suffering would we be willing to endure if we thought it would result in eternal life for our own people? To broaden that question, how much suffering would we be willing to endure if it meant life or revival for Panama City? To clarify what I mean by suffering, I really have three ideas in mind here. Three ideas or types of suffering with regards to the Christian life. The first is a persecutionary suffering. And it comes about because of our faithful witness. It comes about by living a Christian life and just the way we're persecuted through that. The second is a physical dying to self. A self-discipline where we suffer because we have to resist the temptation of the flesh. Where we kill sin daily. We, we are actively mortifying the flesh. And the third is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit by, by which the outward suffering, the things that, that come to us, a hurricane by which those things come to us and the Holy Spirit uses those to, to refine us and sharpen us to become more like Christ. And so we know the words of our Lord. We know the words that whoever would come to him must take up their own cross and follow. We know that he told us that if the world hated him, then surely it would hate us. And we know that Jesus also promised that this world we would have trouble, but to take heart, for he had overcome the world. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. So suffering is an essential part of of our sanctification process in the Christian life. And sharing in the suffering of Christ leads to joy and exaltation. Suffering is a refiner's fire by which God forges us into holy vessels of warfare. 
Suffering is the wine press by which God presses and we're crushed, but sweet wine comes forth. Suffering is the labor pains of childbirth and the joyful cry of your child, the joyfulness of motherhood. And so as the world flees from suffering, goes out of its way to avoid it, we as Christians must capture every ounce of it like water and drink it. Drink it for the glory of God. By God's grace, I don't want us to waste any suffering. Don't give Satan or sin a foothold, but we take it captive for Christ. We take it captive and we say, not our will, but your will be done. In our text today, we find a man just like that Messiah warrior named you know, Joseph in the person of Paul. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering. Here in this second letter to Timothy, we find him, he's in prison, he's bound in chains, he's hooked to a Roman guard, and he's under the vicious, cruel reign of Nero. If you know anything about Nero, you know that he would take Christians and dip them in tar and light them on fire as torches. And he would feed them to to wild beasts and lions in the Colosseum. This was no friend to Christians in Nero. Yet he suffers for the sake of the gospel. If we ask Paul this question, and I looked at Paul and said, Paul, how much much suffering would you be willing to endure if you thought it would lead your people, the Jews, to Christ? I think we know the answer. The answer is in Romans 9.3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. How much suffering are you willing to endure for your people, Paul? And he says, if it means being accursed, if it means my eternal life on the line, then cut me off. And cut me off from my own people. That's how much I love them. That's how much I'm willing to suffer. It's radical, self-sacrificial love on display. The Messiah warrior Joseph, he was willing to give his life. He counted his life as nothing for his own people. That's how much he loved them. And Paul considered his eternal salvation a price he was even willing to pay for the Jews. So with the text before us, I want that question to linger in the back of your minds because we're going to revisit it at the very end. I want us to think about that suffering as we look at Paul's instruction to Timothy and really our instruction to us here in 2019. So back in verse 11, Paul says this. He says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted unto him until that day. And so Paul up to this point has suffered greatly, yet he says, I'm not ashamed of it. There's no shame in my suffering because my suffering has not been in vain. He has faith that the message that Jesus passed on to him on the road, and now he's going to pass on to Timothy, will be safeguarded and will be passed down faithfully to other men who will safeguard it as well. Paul encourages the timid Timothy to be strong and courageous and to remain loyal and unashamed of the gospel message, even in face of suffering. So this leads us to our first point. Those who will suffer for Christ must do so fearlessly. Verses 15 through 18. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So there's three things of note here. 
Geographically, Asia in the New Testament is not the far eastern continent that we think of today. Okay? Asia in the New Testament is a Roman province of Asia. It's, it's Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey. Paul's clearly feeling abandoned here. You'll notice the hyperbole. He says, all of Asia, all those in Asia have abandoned me. What he means is that all the people who were once so excited, they were so happy to receive him, and now he's in prison, alone, and he feels utterly abandoned. All of Asia, they've all left me. When Paul needs them most, they're nowhere to be found. Paul mentions two of these deserters by name. He calls them, their names Phygelus and Hermogenes. And apart from their names here, nothing else is known about them in the New Testament. And I told Ashley, my wife, I told her, I said, how awful would it be to have your names mentioned in the Bible as deserters? Like, that's how you remember. That's horrible. In Luke 9, 26, Jesus speaks of such men as these. He says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. Those who are disloyal, disloyal, fearful, ashamed of the cross, ashamed of its ambassadors, will find themselves shamed in the life to come. So in contrast to these disloyal, fearful men, we're told of an extremely loyal, loyal fearless man named Onesiphorus. And his name literally means help bringer. So the help bringer has now come to Paul. Notice how he aids Paul in the example set. The first thing is he refreshed Paul. He refreshed Paul. This, this means both physically, um, probably emotionally, mentally. He came, he encouraged him. Think about uh, after Hurricane Michael, I just went to a yard sale yesterday, and the guy there was handing out free food. He said, just take a bag of free food. He's, he was trying to refresh people. It's very kind how we've all treated each other and tried to feed each other and refresh one another with encouragement. Second thing he did was he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. The fact that Paul is a prisoner did not deter him from coming. The fact that he was under the reign of Nero, that putting his neck on the line like this did not scare him. He still came. He knew what the chances were of his, of his you know, surviving this ordeal, of going into the prisons and looking around and finding Paul. He, he, he put his life on the line for Paul. And the third thing here is that finally Paul says, he searched hard for me. He, he didn't just go, hey, is Paul, you know, is Paul here? Is, you know, he went door to door, prison to prison. You can imagine this, this Ephesian man coming to Rome and he's searching the streets. He's knocking. Have you seen Paul? Do you know a prisoner? You know? I mean, he's, telling, he's putting his life on the line. He's searching hard for Paul. And yet he comes. He's not ashamed of him to find him. What can we learn from the brave Onesiphorus, the help bringer? We must search our own hearts and ask the question again from earlier, once again. Are you willing to suffer for your Christian brothers and sisters? Are we ashamed of the gospel message? How can we refresh and encourage one another and feed and comfort those who are in need? I can't tell you how many people in Panama City probably feel like Paul and will say, all of Panama City has abandoned me. All of them. They've all abandoned me. Are we searching hard for these people? Are we going into the dangerous neighborhoods? Are we going into the, the dark alleyways? Are we going door to door? Are we saying, can, I, can we help you? Can we refresh you? Can we encourage you? We gotta go, we gotta go. I've often heard people say, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And maybe you've heard this, but I've heard a pastor also say, well, yes, but the hands and feet of Jesus were pierced as well. So if you're willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus, then be prepared to be pierced and suffer for his sake. And yet we go like Onesiphorus, boldly into the darkness, carrying the light of the gospel. 
Timothy was timid and weak, and he needed encouragement. He needed to be emboldened, just like we need to be emboldened by the Holy Spirit. And so some of us here may be introverts, and we may be timid and weak, but the Holy Spirit can empower us to go do remarkable, amazing things for his sake. You'll never hear, you'll never hear sweeter words than when you enter your heavenly rest, and the Lord looks at you and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I am I'm longing to hear that from Jesus Christ. Secondly, those who will suffer for Christ must do so faithfully. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable, faithful people who will also be qualified to teach others. There's a few important things here. First, the reception of the Christian faith is founded on the hearing of God's word and the gospel preached by faithful men and women into our lives. Paul passed on the message from Jesus to Timothy and that teaching was in turn confirmed by faithful witnesses who was tested to its truthfulness. There are many in the church who will say, okay, I can't teach. I don't have the gift of teaching. You know, uh, I don't have the gift of, I can't lead a small group. I can't teach a Sunday school. I can't do any of that stuff. But you you can give your testimony. And you can confirm what we're saying. You can say, yes, I can, I can attest to that. In my time of trial, this happened. In my time of suffering, this happened. I can confirm that that's true. Christ will be your all in all. He will be there for you in suffering. We need to pass that message of hope from one generation to the next. Secondly, on this day devoted to mothers, let us look back to 2 Timothy 1.5. He says this, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, And your mother Eunice, and now I am sure, dwells in you as well. When I think of my own mother and my own grandmother and their testimony of long-suffering with regards to my own life, when I think of their many trials, I'm strengthened, strengthened in my faith. They passed it on to me. They passed that torch to me. The Christian faith needs reliable transmitters. It needs men and women who will not water down the gospel. It needs pastors who will faithfully preach the entire counsel of God. It needs grandparents and parents and siblings and teachers and children, even children, yes, your own children, who will challenge us to remember the old story, who will challenge us to remember the gospel in our lives. So mothers, happy Mother's Day. Mothers, sing the gospel over your children. Bathe them daily in grace. Return their nerf bullets and their harsh words with kisses and hugs. I want you to discipline them in love. Lead them in the light of God's mercy and grace. Your faithfulness and your long-suffering will be rewarded, if not in this life, in the life to come. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Uh, My poor mother has probably cried more tears for me and prayed more prayers for me than I ever want to know, than I ever care to admit. Uh, And yet every tear and every prayer was not wasted. It's not wasted. They've carried me to where I am today. So suffer with joy. Suffer with joy. Your hard work is not in vain. Onesiphorus is remembered. He's the help bringer. He suffered for the sake of the gospel. Those who will suffer for Christ must do so fearlessly, faithfully, and finally fervently. Paul gives us three just outstanding examples of what this looks like in verses 3 to 6. First, verses 3 to 6, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There are plenty in this congregation who are military. 
right? Plenty of those who are in the military, and they don't need any explanation for this passage. They know what it means. They know what it means to be a good soldier. A good soldier, by the nature of his profession, expects to suffer. They will expect to suffer in some way. They go through rigorous training. They learn humility. They learn respect for authority. They're subject to the constant stress of battle. What if we go? What if we're shipped out? Where are we going? These warriors who do see combat will come back physically scarred, mentally scarred. They're men of valor. They're men and women of valor who take up the cause of the weak and are willing to suffer for the sake of others. Their joy is found in obedience, in pleasing their officer, in self-discipline, and in the victory of winning. That's where their joy is found. Paul says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. And all that, all that simply means is that you're, mean, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. You're in the world, but not of it. One thing the hurricane did for many of us was it forced hoarders to abandon their hoard. Okay? So if you had a hoard, uh, you know, like a dragon guarding his treasure, you know, it's gone. Most likely gone. And so we had to abandon the things in this life that we thought were so precious. Uh, My wife and I, before we moved down, we sold almost everything, everything big. We knew we didn't have storage. And so we sold almost everything to come down here. A good soldier is ready to move at a moment's notice. He's ready to answer the call of his commander. A good soldier is willing to leave even friends and family and suffer in order to get the job done. There's a reason we are called the church militant. You ever thought about that? The church militant. It's because we're on mission. We're on mission. Our mission was given to us in Matthew 28 by our commanding officer. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Therefore, onward, Christian soldiers. Our weapon is the word of God. Our armor is spiritual, and we wield both with grace, truth, and love. The second example here in verse 5 is an athlete it says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I want you to think of the physical and emotional suffering that an athlete has to go through to be the best. Okay, here is, you remember Michael Phelps, who won 23 gold medals, right, swimming. Here's his training schedule. 6 a.m., wake up. 7 a.m. to 9, p. 9 a.m., swim. 9 a.m. to 10, weight lift. 10 a.m. to 12, eat. 12, 12 p.m. to 1 p.m., nap. 4 to 6 p.m., swim. 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., dinner. 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., spend time with my wife and son. 10 p.m., bedtime. That, that is a singularly obsessed individual. If you looked at that man's schedule, you'd say, yeah, he wants to win. He wants to win, and he did. And he did win. When I think about how much time I waste in any given day, it absolutely would astound you How I can waste time. I'm a chief expert on wasting time. And this man is so singularly obsessed, he has no time to waste. He has it all mapped out. Later on in 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul's going to say this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Personally, I have kept the faith. But as far as my race goes, as far as my fight goes, I don't know how many medals I'm winning. And, And we all have to think about that. Are we running? Are we running hard? Are, are we carrying the faith like a runner with a baton? And we have that baton and we're ready to pass it off to the next generation. What, what does it say to my kids if they see their father limping towards the finish line? Do they think he really cares? Do you think, do you think my kids will look at me and go, man, my dad's on fire for the Lord. He's, he's strolling around, he's smelling the daisies. He's... 
We need to run hard. The next generation, the younger generation, needs to see us, older people, the even elderly, we, they need to see us running. They need to see us and go, man, they, they love the Lord. They are running hard. How can we impress upon the younger generation the importance of suffering if we're not willing to suffer ourselves? Practically, this simply looks like obedience. It looks like obedience. It looks like putting Jesus first. It looks like putting him above work, above sports, above family, above everything. Christ must be preeminent above all things. He must be king. He must be king of our lives. John Piper puts, um, he talks about Christian obedience like this. He talks about cows and trains. And the Christian is like a locomotive, like, like a powerful locomotive. We have all the fuel we need, right? We have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit working us. That's like our coal. That's like our fuel. And we have this beautiful set of track. And we are going towards our destination. We're boom, we're going down. But some Christians will look over as their trains, you know, Christians are trains. They'll look over and they'll see cows over in a pasture. And they'll say, I, I want to be a cow. Those cows are free. They have all that land to walk in. They can eat. They can do whatever they want. I'm stuck on this track. Now, what happens if a train tries to get off its track? Is it free? No. And so John Piper says, you don't want to be a cow. Cows are stupid, right? You don't want to be a cow. They think they're free. They're stuck in a pen. They, they can't go anywhere. They're prodded and poked, and they eventually end up as food. Don't be a cow. Be a train. And, and so obedience is that track. And it can feel constraining at times. It can feel like, man, we, I want to be so free. I want to be free. But Christian, you have never been freer than when you are riding on God's train. You're riding on that obedience track. You're following his word, and you are going. And it's beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to watch. Show your kids, your friends, your co-workers. Show them that obedience to Christ is actually a life of freedom and joy. It's actually a life of freedom and joy. Run the race of faith. Follow the well-trodden path. Go sweat. Go sweat and push hard for the goal. It's a beautiful thing to watch a Christian who is going hard. It's just phenomenal. I won't tell the story because you know it. Uh, You've seen Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell, who uh, refused to run on a Sunday, right? And... um, before his race, his masseuse handed him this little piece of paper, and it, it was the ending of 1 Samuel 2.30, and it said this. It said, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. And so you know the story of Eric Liddell. You know how he, he gave up an easy race to run a harder one, and he won it. He chose the suffering. He chose the harder path to honor Christ, and God honored him as well. Finally, finally, verse 6 It's the hardworking farmer, Paul says, who ought to have the first share of the crops. So now, finally, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to aim this last little analogy here at empty nesters and retirees, if I can. So forgive me, all right? It's not a rebuke, it's an encouragement. You've been a faithful soldier. It's been glorious to watch you battle. You have been a runner. It has been wonderful to watch you run. And now you get to retire in peace on your farm. Oh, no, actually it says a hardworking farmer. Okay, so no retirement. That's what Paul's saying, okay? Uh, I, I want you to retire. Man, I, there's nothing. I want you to retire. I just don't want you to retire from Christian service. I don't want you to retire from Christian service. Practically, this looks like starting a Bible study. It looks like praying for us. It looks like uh, starting a prayer group. It looks like my grandparents have, are, are in a retirement home, and they run three Bible studies. They go to the nursing home and they minister to people. It looks like finishing the race hard. It looks like harvesting the crops that you've spent your whole life planting. 
Maybe it looks like the older men mentoring the younger or the older women mentoring the younger women. Maybe that's what it looks like. I cannot begin to tell you the amount of times I have been refreshed and encouraged by an elder who comes up to me and just gives me a word or, or says, I'm praying for you. I cannot tell you how, how hard, that, you know, I look at my feet and I go, I gotta, I gotta run, I gotta keep running, keep running, keep going. Thank you for the baton. Don't retire from your Christian service. Suffer faithfully until the end. And when we meet Jesus, then we'll all get some R&R. Okay? I pray that none of us will take any of this as a rebuke, but it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to myself. I'm preaching to myself to run, to harvest, to fight. The last verse here is verse 7. It says this. Paul says, think over what I say. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. As we seek to serve the Lord fearlessly, faithfully, fervently, and we seek to find joy in our suffering, we need to meditate on this passage. Take this whole week and think about this passage. Take this week to pray. Pray for your people. Pray for this church. Pray for revival. Ask God to, to, to search your own heart and see the places where you're lacking, the time that's being wasted where we're not redeeming our time. I want to leave us with a bigger picture, if I can, before we go. 21.6% of Panama City back in 2017 were classified as poverty, in poverty. Back in 2017, that's before the storm. So you can imagine, I wonder what that number is now. 41.8% say they are religious. 41.8% in the Bible Belt say they're religious, with 17% of those being Baptist, and 1% of those being... Presbyterian gives us a whole new meaning for the 1%, right? We are the 1%. On a scale of 1, which is low crime, to 100, which is high crime, Panama City violent crime is 43.6, and the U.S. average is 22.7, and the property crime is 84.6, and the U.S. average is 35.4. Panama City, and I can say this because I grew up here, lived here most of my life, we desperately need Jesus. I can say it because I desperately need Jesus. And I know you do as well. Every hour, every second, we need, the, we need Jesus. We need faithful witnesses who suffer with joy. We need faithful transmitters. I believe with all my heart that God is going to do something wonderful here. That he's going to take this hurricane. He's going to take the mess of it. Everything that's getting rebuilt. He's going to do something phenomenal and man, wouldn't it be amazing if we were on the front lines of that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we were on the front line, that rare little 1%, us little Presbyterian unicorns, right? If we were on the front lines of storming the gates of hell. What if we saw our city radically transformed by the gospel and we helped lead the charge? If we fearlessly, faithfully, fervently went headfirst into the waters of suffering and we dragged out those who were drowning and they said, all of Panama City has abandoned us. And we said, no. No, they haven't. We're here. We're help bringers. We're here. We're going to take you in. Oh, that God would empower us, his people, to do a mighty work here in Panama City. Ultimately, Ultimately, none of this will be accomplished unless the Holy Spirit moves. So what do we do? We pray. We pray hard. None of this will be accomplished unless we are men and women of the Word who know their Bibles, who transmit it 
faithfully. And none of this will come to pass unless we humble ourselves and repent of our own sins. Hebrews 12, 1-3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. He's overcome the world. Jesus, Jesus, how much suffering would you be willing to endure if you knew it meant eternal life for your chosen people? And Jesus' answer was the cross. He knew how much suffering he had to endure for us. And he went with joy. He went willingly because he ran hard. And now he waits at the finish line with open arms. And so if you do not know this Jesus, if you do not know him today, my hand's outstretched. And I have a baton. And I'd like you to take it. And I'll run with you. We'll run alongside you. And we'll work, we'll work for the crown We'll go forward. There's no kinder Savior. You'll never find a kinder Savior than Jesus Christ. And he sits there waiting. And we'll run through, and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.